This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. Look for their newest line, Pristine, the only complete line of pet food made with responsibly sourced ingredients. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org pets. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Food Without Borders. This is a show about food, politics, and identity. I'm your host, Sari Kamen. You're listening to heritageradionetwork.org. Today, I have three guests in studio with me, which is very unusual and exciting. I'm going to just introduce them all individually, starting with Catherine Pickley. She is the curator at MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn. As a food historian and writer... Her work focuses on the intersection of food, culture, memory, and place. At MOFAD, she leads the educational department and oversees exhibitions and is instrumental in the research, writing, and development of exhibitions such as Chow, making the Chinese-American restaurant, which is what we're going to discuss today with her. Also, I have James Boo. He is the creator of One Minute Meal, an award-winning documentary series that uses food to reveal the communities, legacies, dreams, realities, and unseen forces that shape life in New York City. Also with me today is Most Jen. He's a poet, an artist, and an actor. And at the end of the episode, he's going to be performing his poem, Saturday Morning Cartoons. So I have that to look forward to. So welcome, everyone. Catherine, James, Most Jen, so nice to have you. Hey, thanks for having us. Um, So Catherine, uh, starting with you, I thought it would be really interesting to have you on the show um, because you're at MOFAD and currently there's an exhibit called Chow, Making the Chinese American Restaurant. And um, you and the executive director of MOFAD, Peter Kim, made the decision to extend the exhibit. And I know that I uh, received an email, as everyone who subscribes to MOFAD does, a really impassioned email um, that said, I'll just, I'll just say what he said. He said, in light of the current national dialogue around race, identity, and immigration, we believe the story of Chow is more important than ever. And that was his reasoning for extending the exhibit um, through, the, through mid-February. So why don't you start by just telling us what is the story of Chow? Sure. Um, Chow tells the story of the Chinese-American restaurant. Uh, this These were born um, in the mid-1800s with the first wave of Chinese immigrants from Guangdong province. Um, Most of those men mostly came uh, to work in the gold mines, on the railroads, and they also brought their food with them. Um, You have Chinese restaurants opening as early as 1850 in California. So we talk about that a little bit, but mostly we talk about how the Chinese-American restaurant grows um, throughout the 20th century. In 1882, the Chinese Exclusion Act is passed, and it basically bars all Chinese people from entering the country. Yet 
you know, by the almost by 1900, you have Chinese American restaurants across the country. In 1896, there's a Chinese restaurant in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Um, in 1900, the New York Times proclaims that the city is chop suey mad, right? So <laughs> despite the fact that we're not allowing Chinese people in starting in 1882 and going um, basically until 1965, um, these restaurants spread across the country. They become um, a well-loved or they serve a well-loved cuisine, um, and they become a part of our everyday social fabric. Jennifer A. Lee has a, a great statistic that there are more Chinese-American restaurants in the country than there are McDonald's, Wendy's, Burger King's, and KFC's combined. So we wanted to take this story and talk about um, this food, use this food as a lens to think about immigration policy. Um, you can really use the restaurant menu to trace different waves of Chinese immigrants to the U.S. as these dishes change. Yeah. And I also like, I mean, just your comment about um, the reporter saying United States is chop suey mad or just mm -hmm. like the story within the story. And anyone else, James Moshen, can comment on this, like how chop suey is not even a Chinese dish. Right. Um, chop suey is, um, it means uh, stir-fried jumbled fragments. So um, it's probably uh, a peasant dish from uh, Guangdong province, um, but it comes to the U.S. And it, and it changes, right? Like most foods that come to the U.S., it changes based on um, ingredient availability, based on the uh, tastes of the people that are eating it, right? If you're serving uh, Chinese food in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, there might be several other Chinese Americans there, but you're not only serving uh, Chinese people. And so the, the dishes, the menus change. Yeah. Um, so what made you decide to include Chow as an exhibit in the curriculum at MoFAD? Yeah, well, we well, we're looking to do a cultural story. We wanted to focus on on immigration, and you know, there are lots of different people that come to the U.S., but this uh, story really stood out to us because of uh, the the history of the Exclusion Act, and in different forms, this continued to be in place until 1943, and then was wholly um, overturned in 1965. And while probably <laughs> All immigrants that come to this country have faced and continue to face um, some, you know, form of. Sorry. No, that's OK. That's I mean, okay. Yeah. can you speak to the reversal of the Immigration mm -hmm. Act? Like sure. what, 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 what were the events that ha made that happen? Yeah. So um, the Exclusion Act is overturned in 1943 during World War II. Um, we allow only 105 Chinese visas a year at that point. Um, in 1965, the Hart Seller Act is passed, and that sort of, or that doesn't sort of, that does eliminate uh, this quota that is put in place, this immigration quota that's put in place in the 1920s. Um, and so it allows something like 20,000 uh, immigrants from each country around the world. Um, so that's really when we see uh, a large-scale um, immigration from China to the U.S. It's just so interesting, like, the tension between, um, you know, the, just the anti-immigrant sentiment towards Chinese people, yet the, the, the perseverance of Chinese food as, I don't know, just like its own sort of cultural phenomenon, like how these things can stand next to each other. And I see that today. I mean, and anyone can speak to this, like how we can, you know, love eating Mexican food and still have a president who calls Mexicans rapists, like at the same time, how these things can, like the dual, the dualism of this. Um, 
I mean, maybe you can talk about like why it was so important to extend the Chow exhibit and how, you know, current issues are so unfortunately reflected. Right. Um, I'm going to take it like a step back for a minute. Sure. But, um, sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. So museums are at a really interesting place. A lot of with with things that are going on in the world and in politics, um, museums, lots of different museums are trying to figure out, you know, how can we talk about these things? How do we talk about these things um, and maintain some sort of we use at MOFAD the term journalistic integrity, like present facts and try not to present necessarily our own opinions. Can we talk about these things? Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, in the food world, you know, a lot of food media feels very tone deaf when we're thinking about um, politics. And so MOFAD lives in, in between those two worlds. Um, in August, we made this decision sort of last minute. Chow was supposed to close September 3rd. Um, we watched what was going on in Charlottesville and we felt like we needed to say something mm -hmm. and we weren't sure what to say, if we could say it, how to say it. And we realized that we had this phenomenal exhibition that addressed these things very clearly. And we saw visitors walking away and making the connection to things that were going on, that are going on today. And we decided that we needed to extend the exhibition so that more people could see that, so that we can continue this dialogue um, about immigration and food culture. So how are you gonna continue the conversation? I mean, MOFAD stands as it is, it's gonna be through February, but what is your what is your mission as a museum yeah. to, to further the conversation surrounding yeah. anti-immigration sentiment? Um, so we, our motto is that food is culture and that um, is, is really important to us and, and underpins everything that we do on Monday. Actually, we are opening um, a small exhibition, a photography exhibition and program series called Feasts and Festivals. Um, we thought that with the holiday season, we wanted to celebrate uh, special occasion food from cultures around the world. So we have um, 12 images from the Sever archives uh, looking at things like uh, a monk eating his lunch uh, in, a, in a Buddhist monastery in Japan, um, uh, Italian women making pasta, um, lots of different beautiful, beautiful photos um, that celebrate different food cultures. And like I said, we also have a program series as part of this um, where we will be looking at these things as well. That's going to kick off on Monday, November 6th with a Dia de los Muertos party. <laughs> um, we have lots of great people coming. We've partnered with the Mexican Cultural Institute of New York to put that on. We'll have food. We'll have a community altar. Um, so you can come see the photos. You can uh, drink some Mexican hot chocolate, have a little mezcal if you're of age. Um, <laughs> and it'll it'll just be a nice way to, to kick this off. And we have, like I said, we have great programming that you can see at mofad.org slash events. Um, coming up as well as part of Feasts and Festivals. Great. Um, yes. And one of the things that was happening at MOFED recently is you had uh, Mr. James Boo's films playing at MOFED in the studio with us. So I thought that would be yes. a nice segue. Actually, it's very convenient. It is very convenient <laughs> that you're both in my studio today. Um, so we'll just, we'll just move on over to you, James. So happy that you're here. And I got to see One Minute Meals, the, what was it, the, the third series of, of the documentary series? That's awkward phrasing. But anyway, I got to see your third installation when it was at MOFAD, and I loved it. Um, so why don't you just explain what the project was? 
Uh, first, I want to say, I don't know how many of your listeners have seen this studio, but these mics are super legit. You don't None have, of them you have seen it. You don't no have to, you, to you see inside the Batcave. You don't have to turn away from the mics to breathe. Um, <laughs> all right, sorry, what was Thank the question? You. Oh, you know, just what? what is your documentary series? Uh, Woman at Meal is a collection of uh, one-minute documentaries that all use food as a way to look into someone's life. Um, and... There are, I think, 62 of these stories online on the website, um, and a lot of them are also on Facebook. And so when you take these all together, um, the purpose behind the work is to just build uh, a kind of a portrait of people in New York that looks more like what it actually is. And, um, you know, take that with a grain of salt because it's really coming from my perspective and what I've experienced um, through the act of just walking around um, asking people what they're making and where they're from. And so, um, you know, it certainly has that kind of imprint from my experience on it. But what I wanted to share of my experience was that um, you can go for so many years living in the city without ever actually meeting anybody in it uh, <laughs> who isn't paying you to do something or who you're trying to sell something to uh, or other all other kinds of either boring or unpleasant interactions. So, um, <laughs> yeah, for, for, for all the people who will look back and realize that they moved here and left 10 years later and only ever had food delivered to them and have never met the person who made it, um, let alone kind of seen all, all there is to see um, and all the, all the great people there are to meet in the city. Hopefully this is a resource for them. Um, and also it's not like 90% white. Right. Yeah. It's like 90% not white. I sh- I, or maybe higher. <laughs> I should know that number yeah. immediately, but... Uh, something like that. It's mostly not white. Um, and we'll get to that. So you say that uh, within these one minute little mini documentaries, um, you're sort of uncovering the unseen forces. What are, what are the unseen forces? What does that mean to you? Um, that kind of reference is, is kind of, there are a certain set of the stories that are about things you just don't normally think about um, that do have something to do with, um, with food. So, one example of that, I mean, the, the big, you know, obvious, kind of obvious, maybe scene for us is gentrification, um, but from the perspective of, of different people um, who are trying to start restaurants, who are trying to hold on to them. Um, there's one story about a chef, um, Ella Schmidt, who is in Bushwick, um, not that part of Bushwick you're thinking of, but the other part. Not the <laughs> which part is, that we're in. Yeah, not this part. Um, <laughs> um, part. But, but she's, you know, she's uh, a Latinx um queer female independent chef who, who started a business um, in the neighborhood she felt uh, she identified with and, and was a place where she can grow something. And, um, you know, a few years into it, the, the pace of development is just happening much faster than she thought. Uh, so there's like seven years ahead of, of watching everything kind of get reshaped around you. Um, and then realizing that you have to change yourself. It's, you don't have the option of just sticking it out and saying, well, I made this cool place that fits what the neighborhood used to be. Once the customers start to change, they're not going to want what it used to be. And so um, that's her story is kind of coming to terms with that. Um, and then there are other unseen forces, um, kind of the effect of food delivery uh, and how it's essentially concentrated uh, in a few places, but most notably the South Bronx, um, which directly leads to a huge air pollution congestion and lack of green space problem for people who just live there because they can't afford to live anywhere else. So they go where they can, you know, the families go where they can afford to live. And then we dump all our trash and on them and then have all our delivery trucks deliver their groceries by coming from their neighborhoods. 
Um, so, yeah, the, I'm sorry. Unseen forces usually aren't happy forces where it's yeah, like no, tuck you in at night. But yeah. um, that's not all the stories are like that, obviously. Um, Some of them are really happy stories. Yeah. A lot of them are. I can think of one. Lutfi. The- <laughs> yeah, I think that there's um, something that uh, I didn't really have a, a a principle or orientation or or agenda when I started the series, but I think after I just kind of followed my intuition and started asking people why they thought it was good, um, a lot of people just came back and and said separately said the same thing, which was that. Um, it helped them recognize the dignity that, that people have that you can't really take away from them. Mm-hmm. And no matter, even if the story isn't said in a challenging circumstance, so if you have a refugee who comes over um, who is in, you know, came from a really bad situation where he tried to make a home in four different countries in the Middle East, um, but because he is gay, um, he was literally targeted and uh, kind of, put into these weird sting operations and, and, and street harassment and, and all these things. And so uh, he eventually just didn't see a way to be safe and alive and uh, went through a bunch of hoops, got refugee status, got accepted by the U.S., came in, and um, now he's extremely happy. His life is not easy. I mean, he has, <laughs> it's really hard uh, to make it, and uh, New York is kind of a... There's some great things about it if you're coming in as a refugee, and there's some really, really hard things about it, notably the cost, right? So um, you can look at that story and see it as a really, um, you know, it's not really telling the whole truth of, of how many refugees don't get accepted, how sure. many people don't make it out, how many people aren't as savvy as he was about how to approach Especially um, this now. challenge. Yeah. How many um, refugees, yeah. But, you know, the part of the story that... that I chose to highlight and, and was that, you know, even, even given all that, um, it, it matters to know that someone got through and, and has a voice most importantly. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that people who have been enjoying that film, uh, which has been playing at different festivals and, and community screenings, um, what they're taking from it is, is his voice and what he's saying, not, not kind of like that he's an object that we can wave around to make ourselves feel better, um, about the U S or its policies or, about how great we feel about refugees, but just that he has his own story to tell. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot to unpack in one minute, and you did such a phenomenal job with all of your stories being able to fit in somehow like backstory and front story and present moment, which is, I don't even know how you did that. Um, but my takeaway from that one especially was was the food. I mean, being, of course, the common denominator in all of your little mini stories, but food being sort of this conduit that he uses to to meet new people, and he's a way, he's able to express his culture, and he doesn't necessarily have to share, you know, every single detail of his backstory. He can say like, "This is something that I ate, and this is where I came from," and that's just a really visceral experience when people sit around a table and eat that food, and then they appreciate it, and he he absorbs that appreciation, and it's just really beautiful to watch. Um, and I know you already kind of touched on it, but. You know, I just wanted to hear in your words why you chose to focus on largely, you know, immigrants and refugees and people that represent marginalized populations in in your films as opposed to like chefs. And, you know, like most people that we think of when we think of like the food community. Um, I, I guess what I would say is my motivation was not the food community. It was people um, who who come here, are from here, you know, th- saying you're from here, it can mean a lot of different things. Um, it doesn't always mean the kind of hard line thing that people would, would first guess. 
Um, but the thing that, you know, I, I, I personally, I don't really like New York that much. I think it's, it's a very unhealthy place to be, um, particularly if you want to work in the arts. Um, and there's a lot of kind of bad that goes with the good. Um, but um, I believe in an integrated society, right? So the things that are great about New York is that no matter where people are coming from or how long they've been here, there's, uh, they find ways to integrate together. Um, if you were to just take kind of the, the cross-section of New York food that gets broadcast, though, kind of, you know, by pound for pound, that it's not showing an integrated community, right? It's showing a lot of cases. If you just, I don't know, you take an aggregate, made a, a chart of all the food stories, how many, what percentage of food stories are about people, what percentage of them are about what can you buy and, and convincing you to buy things. Um, you know, the vast majority of it revolves around this kind of uh, bloodless, soulless interaction. Um, and I just wanted to not do that. <laughs> and and when, you, when, you, when you start out just not doing that, I mean, who do you end up, you end up talking to people who are around, right? <laughs> I don't know, I, I think if you, if you just take as, if you just take the direction of, of I'm not gonna cover famous chefs, uh, I'm not going to cover people who have made it, quote unquote, people who are um, killing it or successful. I mean, in this country, like you, you that just means you're not going to have as many white people because that's how the power structure yeah. works uh, and, and presents itself. So um, from there, then there's a whole other twists and turns and, and things that I've done to really make the diversity and inclusiveness tangible, not just for immigrants, it's for people of color. Right. So uh, making sure that there's not a token black person. Um, just like I wouldn't want a token Asian person or a token queer story, trying to have multiple stories from different backgrounds. And, and it's not a complete, you know, it's not an index or a, uh, encyclopedia by any means, but, but hopefully people, I think people get the idea, right? The feeling that, um, it's not, um, a checklist, um, but it is very inclusive. One Minute Meal just won the Made in New York award at the Film Food Festival. Congratulations. Thanks. Congratulations. Wonderful. Uh, why do you think your films are are resonating with so many people winning awards? Oh, I should have thought about that, I guess. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I think that there's definitely a current of the time, the time, and I guess the national conversation, I guess you would say, that we're in. Um, because people are, are looking, um, I mean, this conversation is just more common now. Um, and it's weird that it wasn't, as, I mean, I don't know, personally, I think it's weird that it wasn't as common and people weren't as receptive to it maybe even two years ago. Um, I guess that's a silver lining of our current administration. <laughs> um, but, you know, I don't know. I, I, I do ask people that I haven't had a chance to really dive in um, and kind of interpret what people have been responding to um, recently. But I, I think generally, I mean, at least in the spaces that I'm in, uh, people, people appreciate not being treated as objects. And so when they see that reflection of, um, you know, this is not like a food TV show. Uh, I'm not yeah, it watching. just feels real. I mean, that's, yeah. that's what did it for me. It's just what you said. It's like, it's real people. It's authentic. It's just people trying to make it. Great. <laughs> good, good answer. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to answer your question for you. <laughs> um, no, I appreciate, I appreciate the assist. Yeah. And you kind of touched on this a little bit, but just the last question, like what, what is your hope when you were making it? Like, what did you want people to walk away with? Uh, I think coming back to the, the first kind of instinct that I mentioned, um, it's just really easy because living in New York, it's so hard. Uh, certainly if you're, you know, whatever you do, if you're, if you're, let's say you are a professional chef and you are well-known and 
uh, you still work like crazy, right? So, you know, wherever you are on the scale, um, but I think especially if you're, um, honestly, uh, yeah, especially if you're kind of, you're not high up on the economic scale and, and you don't have so much free time, um, I think that's the biggest strategy of all, right? You're from here, um, you're, you're kind of, you're a New Yorker for life, um, and you, you know a lot of the local history, but like it's gonna, gonna get washed over or bought out or you can't have the time to travel with your kids and go see other places. Um, I hope they get to see some of what they think is valuable about being being here and being from here. Um, and then for those who are like me, who are just kind of, you move here and you try to do some stuff and you know not go broke. Um, hopefully, you know, if, if you have one of these white collar jobs and um, you do get stuck just in the office all day and all night and you never really get to see what is out there. Um, this is just one reminder, right? Because it's so short. Hopefully it reminds you that you're missing a lot of stuff and it's not the stuff you think you're missing. It's just the, the everyday interactions that we should, we should have and pursue and, and cultivate. Um, and, if, and if more people are able to do that, uh, we might have a different baseline for how we approach you know, bigger decisions in our lives or how we engage with the community. Um, these are all very unmeasurable things, but <laughs> say, hopefully um, if anyone out you know, who's watching hears these words, they'll see like, yeah, that makes sense. And hopefully that yeah. resonates. Where can we watch your films? Uh, all of the stories are at OneMinuteMealFilms.com. And they are also um, all over the Edible websites of New York. So Edible Brooklyn, Edible Manhattan, Edible Queens, Edible Bronx. Uh, there's no Edible Staten Island, but uh, Staten Island Advance, uh, SILive.com has put some stories up to represent Staten Island. Um, so they kind of wound their way through the food communities. But if you wanted to just kind of sit down and see everything, you'd go to OneMinuteMealFilms.com. Thank you, James. Thanks. Catherine, thank you. Thank you. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with Most Jen the Poet. This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. You put a lot of care and thought into what you eat. After all, you're a food radio listener. That thoughtfulness goes hand in paw with how you feed your pets. Purposeful pet food doesn't happen by accident. Castor and Pollux scours the earth to carefully select the best organic and responsibly sourced ingredients. New Pristine from Castor and Pollux is the only complete line of pet food made with ingredients that are responsibly raised, caught, or grown. Feed your dog or cat the new standard, like grass-fed beef, wild-caught fish, and vegetables grown without synthetic fertilizers or chemical pesticides. Pristine from Castor and Pollux. Purposeful pet food. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org pets. Hey, you've been listening to Food Without Borders on heritageradionetwork.org. We are now going to hear from Most Jen, the poet. He's performing his poem, Saturday Morning Cartoons. When I was a kid, uh, I used to get so excited to wake up and watch Saturday morning cartoons. It was this blissful feeling watching my favorite shows while eating cereal milk dripping down my spoon. Now I'm in my late 20s and I'm disgusted with what I see on TV. Between the chaos, the murders, and the mistreatment of the Syrian, quote unquote, refugees. Now, I put refugees in quotations because that's what the media has labeled them, you see? To show you that these people aren't fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, working human beings, nah, refugees. 
devalue their worth and take away their right to breathe makes it easier for others to mind their own business while they sip on their tea. They feel that if they turn their gaze, it'll all get washed away by the waves that put that poor Syrian baby on a beach. But I ain't even trying to preach. I'm just using my reach through this persuasive speech. Because this classes act as a subject for us to teach, don't we know? That home is where the heart is, and it gets hard on the kids knowing that their home is where their fam is, and their fam gone, so they look to find a home where the free, the brave, and unfortunately the heartless live apart from this. They've come so far for this. Leaving a tyrant German country in hopes of a better life, instead get greeted with anger, treated as dogs like Fife, how can we stand for something if we're too busy sitting on the sidelines? In my mind, we are a people of valor and gallantry. Against all agony and tragedies, one ummah, a tribe of families, and by Allah, we will take these beautiful Syrian people behind us as we shield them from all the inhumanity. What? Refugee. These are blood, bone, skin, and a beating heart like me. It's a shame to see those in need behind locked doors when we have the massive key, and in all honesty, I am honestly, constantly thinking consciously that this is our responsibility. The ability to give them the opportunity to be free. We should be their knights, always there like the moon. We should be their light shining bright like the sun in June. So let us commune in hopes that one day soon their children can wake up to watch Saturday morning cartoons while they eat their cereal milk dripping down their spoon. Yes. Wow. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mostan. I appreciate that. It's so nice to have you. So I heard you perform at uh, a refugee food festival, and I was just so moved by that. I wanted you to come. So I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you for having can me. You, can you tell us a little bit about the story of, of writing that poem? Um, I, had a, I had a good friend of mine in uh, D.C. reached out to me. Uh, he said he works with uh, a charity called the Sparkle Foundation. Um, and what they did was uh, they were raising money for Syrian refugees that came to America uh, to have them have shelter, food, water, and get them adjusted. Um, and he asked me to perform. Um, and at the time, I was on my way driving to D.C., and I was trying to figure out what to write. And um, I wanted something that I always li like to write with double entendres and metaphors. So I didn't want to just give you straight to the point. I, what came to my mind was when I was a kid, you know, that that feeling of like getting up on Saturday and watching cartoons, that was, that was an amazing feeling to me. I think that's nostalgia to most people. Um, so I wanted to compare that versus what these people must be feeling, you know, that there's no happy, happiness, you know, sorrow, defeat, um, and have them contrast off each other was, uh, was I thought was a, was a good way to, to get my point across. So I performed it out in DC, um, and then I posted it online and it went viral on Twitter. And then Jabber and Nasser from Eat Comida seen it, uh, which I'm friends with them uh, before. And they were like, hey, man, we have this thing called uh, a refugee event for for we're doing for Comida. And it was Lutfi, who's, who was a chef. And he was like, we'd love for you to come perform. The Syrian, the Syrian the refugee. refugee who's in James's One Minute Meal yeah. documentary. Which, no way. Which yes. was also at MoFat. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's six, all coming together six here. Six degrees of separation right yeah. there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I performed it a couple of times um, for Comida, and then the last one was at the Refugee Food Festival, mm -hmm. and that's where we met. That's and, where I saw you do it. Yep. Yeah, I so this, this poem is taking you places. It is, surprisingly. I, I really don't um, write that deep. I try to write from personal experiences, so a lot of things that happen to me. Um, but uh, I think that, that poem, I think, resonates with a lot of people. It touches on emotions, so uh, I'm glad. I'm honestly glad that people connected with it. Um, it's getting traction and um, it's shedding light to something that we should all be paying attention to. Do you feel like you're going to 
talk about this issue more? I mean, is it has it unlocked anything for you as like a topic to explore? Definitely, definitely. I feel like um, I'd love to to write more poetry about the injustices and the inhumanity going on that we're seeing, unfortunately, uh, right now. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that it is doing some type of good. Uh, you know, power, words can be very powerful. So. I think it's really meaningful. And I think to all of you in the room with me right now, I mean, we we talk about of it's, you know, all of the horrible things that are happening in the world right now that are a result of our of our current administration. But, you know, hopefully we'll be able to look back at this time and think about all the good that was created as a response. And I think all of you are just such strong examples of, you know, the power of art and film and words and um it's just, it's really meaningful and impactful and, and the way it's, uh, it's resonating and affecting everyone around you is, it's a good thing, you know. I do have a question though, because I, yeah. I know you're on live feed right now. What's up? What, what was the cereal you were eating? <laughs> um, Captain Crunchberry. <laughs> oh, Crunchberry, sorry. Crunchberry. It wasn't the regular Captain Crunch. I needed that. that a little Captain, extra. A little extra, you know. A little fruit. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very good question, James. Um, well, I guess we're at the, the end of the show today. So I want to thank all my guests, my guests today, Catherine, James, Most Jen. Thank you so much for, for being with me and for being together here in the space with me. Thanks for listening out there to Heritage Radio. This is Food Without Borders. Um, the show will be archived in a little bit on the website, heritageradionetwork.org, or you can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So we'll, we'll see you next week back here at 7 o'clock on Wednesdays. listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.